Hey guys, welcome back to Four Eyes, the podcast series that gives you a clear view into the optometry world across Canada and the US. We are your hosts. I'm Dr. Amrit Bilku. I'm Dr. Deepon Carr. Hi, I'm Dr. Bravinder Rindava. And I'm Dr. Alex Kuhn. So Nikita, for all of our listeners who may not know who you are or what inclusive psychotherapy is, would you mind telling us a little bit more about yourself and your brand? Absolutely. So I'm a registered psychotherapist and a registered social worker licensed provincially in Ontario and federally. So I am the founder of Inclusive Psychotherapy, which is a practice where we provide therapy to individuals and couples. Um, Specifically for myself, I specialize in high-functioning depression, high-functioning anxiety, um, helping my clients navigate dual cultural identities, self-esteem, people-pleasing, perfectionism, and any specific like mental health concerns that are quite specific to the children of immigrant community. That's sort of my niche, um, but I work mostly with young adults and adults between the ages of 20 to 45. Mm-hmm. Out of all the types of you know, um, therapy that you can provide for people, how did you develop this niche? for, you know, um, children of immigrant parents and high functioning individuals? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. You know, it's interesting because I was, I always struggled to find my niche. When we were in graduate school, we were told that, you know, you have to find a niche, a, um, a specific one that really speaks to you. And I always struggled with that until I was looking for a therapist for myself. And I could not find anyone who, whose bio I read and I went right away, oh, that's the person for me. But that really got me thinking, okay, so there's no millennial brown therapist, female therapist um, in the community. And if they are, they're not really talking about social justice or they're not talking about social issues like immigration and, and children of immigrants and mental health circumstances unique to them. It's one thing to kind of talk about this stuff clinically. And of course, that's what I do in my practice as well. I work from a clinical perspective, but more than that, I think I work from a social perspective. So helping my clients unpack their gender identity and how that intersects their mental health or their cultural identities and how that intersects with their mental health. And I think a lot of the important conversation lies there. So in my search for a therapist, I found my niche. (laughs) Yeah. So you can now be your own therapist. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's going to, that's going to end up well. (laughs) Um, no, that's really awesome. Actually, that's a really underrepresented, you know, category. Even when I think about some of the mental issues that I go through, or even my um, sister goes through, it's true. Like when you're a child of like immigrant parents, there's like different kind of mental issues and other concerns that you kind of face. And yeah, I want to think about it. I'm like, I don't, even when I, like, if I ever, was looking for someone to talk to or like a therapist or someone professional to talk to. That's like one of the questions I would ask is like, will this person really understand where I'm coming from or Mm -hmm. why my parents think the way they think or, but yeah, that's a great niche. So awesome. That's so awesome. Um, That's exciting. Um, But just getting right into it. um, So emotions relating to stress, anxiety, and depression can look and feel quite similar. 
And it can be pretty difficult to pinpoint which emotion is truly being felt. So what are some main differences between these three mental states? Mm, that's a really good question. So anxiety, depression, we kind of all hear these, right, on a day-to-day -day basis. They've unfortunately become a very common experience for everyone. And I think we're all kind of on a spectrum of anxiety and depression. And there are times in our lives when we're a little bit closer to one end than the other. Um, but these sort of three states, I see them a lot more similar, uh, similar in ways than I do see differences. So there isn't too much variability in these states because we know that anxiety and depression go hand in hand and stress is sort of a byproduct, right, of, of that. But mm -hmm. um, from, I guess, a strictly clinical perspective, depression looks like um, poor motivation, feelings of guilt, feelings of shame. Um, anhedonia, which is lack of pleasure in anything. Uh, so, you know, the things you used to do before no longer bring you happiness. Um, an ongoing sense of emptiness, helplessness. Um, and then obviously the extreme version is like questioning the purpose of life and, and not wanting to be here anymore. But anxiety can look more like being activated or on all the time. So restlessness, um, pervasive worry, panic, overthinking, um, perfectionism and that's so similar to stress because I think they both kind of make you feel like you have to be on all the time mm -hmm. but like I said they come hand in hand so the depression is the low and the anxieties are the high mm -hmm. I feel like I get a mixture of all of those yeah. all the time yeah yeah like is yeah, that absolutely. is that what the high functioning professionals are all feeling like a mixture of all three that they're just too busy to even notice that they're experiencing these symptoms that's crazy yeah it could be you know I mean I don't want anyone to listen to this or watch this and feel like they're oh my gosh I have anxiety and I have depression yeah, um, yeah. but I think like I said we all have so many elements of these mm -hmm. that it's not that uncommon to go through, I guess, life or like 25 or 30 or 40 years of life without having felt these states at any given time. Yeah. Um, it's, they're very common, but it's more about, well, it becomes problematic when it's for a long period of time and there's no yeah. changes. Yeah. What is a high functioning professional and do optometrists and optometry students fit into this description? Yeah, so another good question. So, you know, I was thinking about this one. Um, and so a high-functioning professional is basically someone, you know, we can say with high intelligence, high intellect, great problem-solving skills, someone detail-oriented, um, very sort of logic-based type of thought process and narrative in life. Um, so by that definition, I would say that optometrists and optometry students are quite high-functioning because I think it takes a certain level of intellect and orientation to detail right and like a logic-based thought process that comes with doing what you, you guys do um so i think that's absolutely true now a high functioning stressed out person or a high functioning a person with high functioning anxiety or depression that looks a little bit different because if you're experiencing high functioning depression or anxiety you may be able to function at a higher level in life in your activities of daily living or your core functions of life than someone else. So not that your anxiety is not as debilitating as it is for someone else, it's just you have become really good at masking it. Mm. So you show up to work, you see all your patients, you do whatever you need to do, you go home, you show up for your partner, you show up for everyone else, 
but at the end of it like there's nothing left for you to give to yourself Mm. and you just feel like you have to take off all of these masks that you've kind of layered on throughout Mm. the day so you can't be authentic in life and you don't really feel like you belong where there's that sense of emptiness that I was talking about earlier um but that high functioning anxiety you know for for stressed out professional also can look like if it's not panic attacks it can look like people pleasing behavior or aiming for perfection um need for control uh while silently suffering from insomnia poor appetite skin picking right Uh, that's Mm -hmm. a really common one with the high functioning professionals that I work with like skin picking around the cuticles or the lips um hair pulling when you're concentrating so all of these things are so common and this is like that package of high functioning anxiety yeah that sounds everything that you mentioned sounds really common not only for myself but even like people we know behaviors Mm -hmm. we've seen you know on the exterior even that sounds pretty common in optometry school at least Mm -hmm. and for some of the you know co-workers that we have so yeah Mm -hmm. I agree we definitely fit into that category of high functioning Mm -hmm. professional (laughs) I'm getting like flashbacks of optometry school right now And I imagine too, that was probably a high stress environment, right? Yeah. For for yeah. you guys, school, high stress, um, a lot of emphasis on performance, a lot of competition. So I don't mm-hmm. think anyone can come out of that without any sort of scars. Um, yeah. But if you really think about it, a lot of us aren't really taught effective stress management. Um, so these things catch up with you really, really fast, especially in high paced environments like optometry school. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was and- going to ask if, um, oh, sorry. Oh, I was just going to ask if nail biting was a part of those behaviors. Cause I am a huge nail biter. Like I don't even notice yeah. it sometimes. Yeah. I'll just be like, <laughs> so it's just like, oh no, but yeah, no. Um, so yeah, I know that's a good question. So, you know, then my question for you would be, are you biting your nails so excessively that you've kind of hit the nail bed and maybe there's some bleeding or, Um, sometimes yeah sometimes and I don't and I do it when I'm like uncertain or if I'm not you know when you talk about this people pleasing thing I'm like oh that person's mad at me oh god (laughs) so it's like I start biting my nails I don't know if this is like some form of some form of like self mutilation like I heard Mm -hmm. I was reading somewhere like Mm -hmm. you know if you like bite your nails or you know when you have like the Skin hanging off the mm-hmm. part of the nail, like, yeah, yeah, you like kind of rip it off. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, like I was just reading that somewhere, I can't remember what article it was, but I was just like, oh, no, what? no, that's a really good question, right? So, um, that's very common too, the, the constant nail biting, because I think it's more that you're doing it absent mindedly, right? Mm-hmm. When you're anxious, like you said, you're worried, yeah, um, you're at it before you even realize it. And yeah. sort of the same <laughs> with the nail picking, right? Yeah. Someone could mm-hmm. sit there for hours and either pick at their skin on their face or their mm-hmm. nails and this is so common for my students around exam time mm-hmm. um, yeah so these are all sort of a combination of impulse control behaviors um, and also those fueled by anxiety and worry mm-hmm. yeah I think it becomes more self-harming when you kind of go into this territory of um, consciously picking away and inflicting pain upon yourself mm-hmm. Right. So okay. if I dig really far down into my cuticle and there's a lot of blood, this is getting really gross. 
Um, I know. I was just like, oh god, like people are like, gross, but, we, but but we've all been there. Like yeah, I have, yeah. yeah, I've purposely picked up my, you know, I'll, I'll absentmindedly pick at the skin on my lip, but then at at some point, I know if I pull it anymore, it's gonna bleed, and I go for it. Yeah. So it's like I just, you know, you just do it. Like it's, yeah. I never really thought like deeply about that before. <laughs> Actually, um, you know, digging more into um, what factors or signs, um, you know, are contributed to high functioning stress. Um, can you go into any other signs that uh, one can pick out if someone is dealing with high functioning stress? Like, would we be able to identify some of these particular behaviors on somebody else and notice if they're going through any high functioning stress? Yeah, absolutely. So, um I guess think of when you generally experience stress for yourself, right? How might you be coming across to someone else? So probably your speech is really rapid. Um, Your shoulders might be really tight and hunched, right? Um, You might have like flat affect, um, so just like a completely stoic face. You might seem really irritable. Um, You might be very sort of snappy. Um, So these are some of the things I think that you can observe in someone. but I think there's signs that someone can also recognize for themselves, right? Mm-hmm. That they're um, experiencing a lot of high-functioning stress. So obsessive overthinking, um, worrying about how you're always being perceived. Again, that need for perfectionism, people-pleasing, forgetfulness, heart palpitations, mm-hmm. um, stomach pain, back pain, loss of sleep, overeating, undereating, um, poor concentration headaches and constantly feeling the need to be like on like you're running around you haven't had any caffeine you're running around the entire day yeah and you're kind of just checking off your to-do list from one to the other to the other to the other Mm -hmm. and there's no room for you to just kind of stop and just to be that is what high functioning stress can look like as well um I know you talked about this like just a couple minutes before, but again, all these emotions that you're kind of talking about, just like what Amrit said before, all of us have kind of felt these emotions, you know, throughout the day or whatever. But when, if we're feeling it like day to day to day to day, when is it like time to be like, okay, I need to talk to someone or get professional Mm -hmm. help? Like, when is that limit where you're like, okay, what's happening? That's a good question. And I, personally don't think that you know the limit exists like the limit does not exist here because yeah. it's about you accessing support when you think the time is right for you right so a lot of people think that therapy is very problem-based and I have to have hit rock bottom or be really right. depressed for me to go therapy but therapy can be very resource-based um just like we prioritize gym for our mental health if you're having some thoughts that you're concerned with or you're noticing some behaviors that you're saying mm, you know, this is potentially problematic. Go to a therapist, talk yeah. about, talk about where they come from, how they fit into your life. How are they helpful for you? How are they harmful for you? So you may not be entirely, I guess, able to let go of that high functioning mm-hmm. anxiety, but I think you can be a lot more intentional in life. Okay. Mm-hmm. So what short-term and long-term consequences can stress and similar emotions have on our bodies, our personal relationships and overall mental health if it if we kind of just let it be and not deal with it right away yeah. Yeah. that's a good question and I realized I didn't answer the last one fully with the what 
actors to contribute. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're talking about, you know, what contributes to high functioning stress. There's a lot of internal and a lot of external factors. Um, so, I mean, there's so much to this. I don't know if I can do justice to this in like five minutes, but we all sort of have this unique story that we tell ourselves about the world and how we fit into the world. And this unique narrative, um, at the risk of sounding like a cliche therapist, this narrative is really formed in your childhood, right? Um, you develop ideas, core beliefs, a narrative about who you are, what's your purpose, um, how others around you perceive you, and all of this sort of feeds into that personality development piece, right? So one of sort of the main contributors that we see to high functioning anxiety or stress is family dynamics. So textbook example, but like take a child who's always criticized in the home. She's told that she's not good enough or her grades are not good enough um, and that she must try harder. Or she hears other people speak about her in a very, very critical manner. She sees others speak to one another in the home in a very critical manner. Now, this is someone who's more likely to kind of grow up with the narrative that I am not good enough and I constantly need to keep striving for more and more and more and more and more, which is really an attempt to chase that feeling of good enough, right? So this could turn into that need for perfectionism or those unhealthy achievement behaviors. Like if I just get into that med school or if I just get that residency or if I just get that whatever post-grad, you know, then I will be enough and then it will be great. But it's like, it's like the feeling that just doesn't exist. It's like an illusion. The more you chase it, the farther it is out of your reach. But this is a really sort of common narrative for high functioning anxiety and depression. Mm -hmm. And then you have, you know, the cultural factors. So like someone's cultural identity, right? So we know that achievement um, and suffering are really the, the, the yardstick with which we measure um, our sense of self-worth, I think especially a lot in Eastern cultures. So if, again, the story that you're hearing at home is that the only way to be successful is to have that kind of a job or certain financial stability or this or that, you can constantly start to attach your sense of self-worth with your ability to acquire all of these things. Which again can lead to more of that sense of perfectionism, people pleasing. And then you have the larger social context of where we live and the social culture. Um, hostile culture is so glorified um, for us, right? For our generation, that, oh, you gotta have a job and you have to have a side thing and you have to have another side thing. Yeah. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and constantly hustling is so rewarded. So when it's always been rewarded, you tend to not prioritize self care one job just doesn't feel enough mm -hmm. um, and so you're constantly seeking validation in other places so all sort of these things you know they come in together and it's quite convoluted but they really inform that narrative for someone which is what drives that high functioning depression and anxiety yeah I feel like that makes a lot of sense um, you know I think we all come from backgrounds where there's expectations of, you know, yeah. what we should be growing up. And um, like, I know, especially even for Alex, like having a dad who's already an optometrist mm -hmm. and clearly all the other kids did not become optometrists. <laughs> and so yeah. here's Alex and, you know, the youngest one is like, you're, you're my like, last oh, chance, wow. Alex. <laughs> yeah. Like that's, that's a lot of pressure too, to always be like, okay, well, my, 
you know, my, my timeline in life has already, half of it's already been kind of determined based on the expectations mm-hmm. of parents, the expectations mm-hmm. of siblings, because they're like, well, we ain't going to do it. So Alex. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and I think yeah. it wasn't even my parents though. I think I put it on myself. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it was, and it wasn't cause my, both my parents are so they never like tried to bring it up or anything, but I like, in my head, I felt like that was, you know, the choice. That was, yeah. that was the only choice. That was, the- but, <laughs> but I did. I mean, I'm glad I made that choice because I was yeah. doing something else. But you know, <laughs> anyway, yeah, so I'm happy. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was stressful. You know, when yeah. you say yeah. when you say people pleasing, I think that is something that I've witnessed a lot, either with myself growing up mm-hmm. and with friends, with people around me. Um, a lot of people I think are internal, right? Like there's always that worry that, well, if I don't take this extra step for this one person, you know, what are they going to think of me? And I need to make sure that I can make this connection with this person so that they don't get mad at me. They don't get upset. They don't get angry. And um, it's really tough to find a place in your life where you can stand up and just be like, you know what? I'm going to do this one thing for me and I'm going to say no to this person, you know, because I I don't Mm want to do this extra task or I, you know, I don't want to deal with this extra thing in my life. So I'm going to say no. And it's really hard for people to learn to do that. You know? Yeah. I don't know. I think people pleasing is something that, um, can be, I think a lot of people have trouble identifying that they are a people pleaser and how to, fix that or how to, you know, um, kind of change that for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, we're we're all women here. We know that women are socialized naturally to be people pleasers a lot more, right. Than men are. Um, and for a lot of women, we measure, we measure our sense of self-worth with our ability to do things for other people. So we our sense of self-worth with how helpful we are to others. Mm Um, and, these are those qualities, right, that are taught to us very early on. And this is, I don't mean to say that someone is sitting there, you know, teaching us these things sort of explicitly, but this is the messaging that you absorb yeah. when you're out in the world um, as a young girl. And so it's very easy to, for that to develop to this sort of toxic people pleasing mm-hmm. where you constantly feel like, if I don't do this, someone's going to be upset with me and that's going to mean something about me. Okay. So Nikita, um, what short-term and long-term consequences can stress and similar emotions have on our bodies, um, personal relationships and overall mental health if we don't um, deal with those kind of emotions right away? We know that now there's a really huge, um, there's huge body of research and evidence behind the mind-body connection, right? So what happens up here really impacts what's happening here in your entire nervous system. So we know that ongoing chronic stress has shown significant sort of reduction in someone's immunity. Um, So you have higher chances of developing disease because stress gets in the way of your body's ability to produce white blood cells, um, affects digestion, blood pressure, all of those things. Um, It's actually really interesting. There's um, a study, I think, out of some Ivy League in the States where they measured um, undergraduates and their stress levels during uh, the exam season for three days 
And they noticed that it took almost, I think, two months for the white blood cells to come uh, count to come back wow. to normal after just three days of exam stress. Wow. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So now imagine if you're constantly living in, in a state of chronic stress, what that kind of does to your body. But then there's also things like, like I was saying earlier, headaches, stomach pains, ulcers, um, mm-hmm. tightness in chest, tightness in your shoulders. I mean, how many of us have gone for a massage and the masseuse has told us that we have like our shoulders are like mm-hmm. brick. Yeah. Right. And you have more severe cases of any type of chronic illness as well, right? So the more, here's the thing with emotions and mental health, and this is what I tell all my clients, the more you squash it down, the harder it's going to come back. Mm-hmm. And it's going to find ways to come back, right? It's kind of like a dog that you didn't want, but now you have, and you have to feed it, and you have to kind of play with it. You have to give attention to it. Otherwise, it's going to bite your leg off. Mm-hmm. And emotions are exactly the same. The number one thing that I kind of tell my clients is dealing with it right away it doesn't even look like you need to kind of just get rid of it it could just look like you becoming more mindful of yourself right, right? becoming more intentional yeah. so it's not yourself. like a quick fix right it's this is kind of I wish something yeah. you have to work on and deal with every day yeah. so yeah. <laughs> yeah I do right. say that I had a headache basically the first two years of optometry school. Like I constantly oh, kept Excedrin in the market yeah. by buying it. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I, I'm sure you guys remember how much Excedrin I was taking every yeah. day. <laughs> and Alex would get um, massages a lot too. Yeah. And, and from the shoulder pain, the back pain, and, you know, I'm feeling that now too. I feel like my shoulders are always tensed up. It's like mm-hmm. everything that you're saying today, Nikita, is like, I'm just listening to it. And it it's like, you just know what's in my soul. Like <laughs> It's like, you just literally said what my entire life feels like. It's like all these yeah. emotions and all these signs and symptoms yeah. all at the same time. And it, and to me, it feels normal. Like, mm-hmm. and that's, that's the sad part. And that's the hard part to acknowledge is that all of these symptoms are not normal. Um, mm-hmm. They're common, but they're not, they shouldn't be symptoms and signs that we are feeling every day. And yeah, so I hope, I hope a lot of the the listeners that we have today can identify that with themselves too. Now that we're actually speaking about these things out loud um, and yeah. kind of, you know, identifying what's going on with them and how they can take that next step to actually deal with it and yeah um, yeah, and treat it yeah exactly even even you know sort of dealing with it clients will come to me and they'll tell me well you know I don't want to go there because I don't want to open that box right or Mm -hmm. I'm kind of happy functioning how I'm functioning even though I know it's not conducive to my health but I don't want to open this like Pandora's box of emotions and if anyone listening right now is thinking the exact same thing I want to propose an alternative which is that you think you have nicely locked up this Pandora's box with all of like these like nasty feelings and nasty memories inside. And you think you have the key and you think you're out on the outside, but actually you just locked yourself in with the Pandora's box and you're trapped in it. It's already happening around you anyway. If you don't pay attention to it, it's going to seep out of the box and into your life, like back pain, chronic pain, stomach ulcers, whatever, right? 
Or you can choose to open that box and step out and put yourself in a position of power where you can look at all of this that's happening in your life and say, okay, this doesn't serve me anymore. Let's transform it. Uh, What are some tips or practice tools that you recommend for high functioning professionals to use in order to relieve daily stress? That's a good question. So I think first it has to start with recognizing and accepting, um, right? That, okay, there's something happening here that has maybe gotten out of hand or is no longer, like I said, working for you. Um, And be really curious about what is the story that you're telling yourself about how you function in the world. Right. So it's a story that you're telling yourself that, you know, that six figure or seven figure position, that is sort of the way, the key to success and happiness. Or does your do your values look like something different? Prioritize therapy. Right. Like I said earlier, you don't have to hit rock bottom to feel like you have to go to therapy. Um, therapy can be resource based. So find a therapist who has some sort of expertise in this and start a conversation. Any type of movement as as well of course helps I mean I'm not going to sit here and preach that you should be doing cardio 30 minutes a day because I don't do that I'm not that person um and especially for a high functioning stressed out person you're probably working a lot more than eight hours in a day right so it's not feasible for you to go to the gym every single day um but that movement can even just look like stretching throughout the day right so in between patients when you have five minutes maybe maybe two minutes close your office door stretch out your shoulders stretch out your back your legs your arms because we know that the whenever we're in stress our brain releases the stress hormones they go they find a nice place to sit in our bodies and until we do anything to intentionally release that cortisol or that adrenaline it doesn't really go anywhere so stretching can really help with that um take 30 second breathing breaks right or Every time you go to the bathroom, or again, you have two minutes in between patients, close the door, find your breath. Is your breath really shallow? Is it really rapid? Are you feeling connected to where you are, right? All of these tiny, tiny things eventually start to chip away at the anxiety and the stress. It's sort of like drinking your eight glasses of water. I don't think anyone sits there at 1130 at night chugging their eight glasses of water and saying, <laughs> yep, I got my, I got my soda. No, whenever our bodies tell us that we're thirsty throughout the day, we get our glass of water and we drink it. So we have to listen to our bodies in exactly the same way when it comes to stress and anxiety. Yeah. So hopefully that those are quick enough for even the high functioning students and professionals to be able to apply. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's pretty fair. I mean, I've made an active effort to at least stand when my patient leaves and I finish their chart while I'm standing. So at mm-hmm. least I can stretch my legs a little. My back is a little bit straighter. I'll put my arms in the air, just stretch to the ceiling and then go mm-hmm. back down, sit and finish up my charting. So um, I know that's definitely helped my shoulder pain a little bit just by just by standing so that I don't feel like I'm hunched over when I'm sitting a that's lot. Perfect. Um, yeah, like little things every day. But everything yeah. that you said is is on point with, you know, what I think everyone needs to just fit into their daily lifestyle. Like you said, even if it's two minutes and if you do it every single day at the same time, that'll become part of your routine, right? Just like every, just like every other stressful thing that you're doing in your life right now, that's part of your routine. You can try your best to add those 
little de-stressful moments, um, you know, into your day. And I think for 2021, that's definitely my goal. My goal was to stretch more. So, you know, I find those quick little 10 minute stretch videos on YouTube. I sit on my carpet and I just stretch for 10 minutes in the morning before breakfast. And I've finally made it a routine um, for the past month. And it helps. It just makes you feel different throughout the day. It just makes you feel lighter, makes you feel like less worried. You're not thinking about anything, you know, when you're doing this extra activity. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think mine for me has just been slowing down my breathing. So I literally do like boxed breathing where I like breathe in for four seconds, hold it for four seconds, breathe Mm -hmm. out for four seconds and hold that for four seconds. And I don't know, I feel like that makes me feel a lot better too. So um, yeah, just something as simple as my breathing where I feel like I hold my breath a lot when I'm like stressed or something like that. And then I'm just like, okay, hold on a second. I just become mindful for that two minutes and I Mm -hmm. just do the boxed breathing. Even if there's like a whole bunch of craziness around me, if I have a whole bunch of patients waiting and somewhat like a staff member's like, can you? And I'm just like, all right, (laughs) like let me just breathe. (laughs) And I I feel, um, you know, a lot better. Um, I hope our listeners realize that kind of what Deepon was saying where, you know, there's so much craziness going on but you realize that you need a minute to yourself. Mm-hmm. And so again, you said no to somebody yeah. who walked, who walked up to you and said, Hey, listen, I need something right now. You put, you prioritize yourself mm-hmm. and you just said, you know what? No, <laughs> talk to me in five minutes. Like I need this yeah. moment to myself. And that's what I really want to challenge um, all of our listeners to start doing. Like, don't feel bad if you're saying no to somebody when you need a minute to yourself for something. Yeah. Um, and people will understand, like my staff member was just like, oh yeah, okay. I just, no, no worries. And you know, yeah. it's just like, no one will get mad or anything like that. You know, yeah. you just have to just take yeah. that moment to yourself. And those moments are really important. And like you said, Nikita, it's not like a quick fix or anything, but you know, it just helps throughout the day. Right. It's so fun. yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Exactly. Because if you really think about it, right, not saying no or people pleasing is like advocating for everyone else's needs, but your own. Yeah. And it's like self-sacrifice, right? So Mm -hmm. it's about, I think what you're also saying is about intentionally connecting with what you are doing and where that comes from, right? So again, asking yourself, well, what would it mean about me if I said no to this person? And why would that be such a bad thing? Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. I do have another question um, relating to one of the earlier questions uh, that we asked, but say if you are recognizing some of these symptoms in a friend or a family member, you know, obviously you can't force anyone to go to therapy or seek professional help, but what can you do as that friend or family member to support that person and let them know like, Hey, I'm here for you. Mm -hmm. Like, if you need me, I'm here but you don't want to come off like forceful or anything yeah. or pushy. Yeah. And you, you know, you don't want to start an argument or something, but you're just like, I just want to let you know I'm here, <laughs> you know? Yeah. 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 No, that's a really good question. And you're right. There it has to be done um, very gracefully. So the other person doesn't feel attacked or criticized Yeah. Um, or ambushed in any way. Um, 
and so part of it is you know recognizing that there's no one perfect way of doing this it depends on the relationship between you and this other person and what the relationship or vulnerability looks like between the two of you so sort of a standard way that I like to tell my clients uh, about is sort of opening up a conversation and saying you know hey I have something on my mind that I've been wanting to speak to you about for quite some time is now a good time right Mm -hmm. so you're not assuming that they're always ready to listen to you Um, so that creates that culture of understanding and appreciation right off the bat in the conversation. And like you said, you said it actually very well to be able to come in and say, you know, I'm, I'm seeing this behavior and I'm wondering if you noticed it. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if this has crossed your mind or this is what it kind of looks like to me. Is that what's happening for you? Okay. And giving that person sort of that opportunity to speak before jumping in um, because it's, very sort of it feels very disempowering and helpless to see a loved one experience something right Right. which can I think activate like the rescuer complex in us so you want to step in and you want to rescue this person that you love when you're also going to have to do a lot of work around sitting with the discomfort of not being able to pull that person out of their troubles and to be able to say hey this sucks but you know I'm here for you and I'm here to help you unpack it if that's what you want I'm here to help you find some psychoeducation online if that's something that you need I can help you maybe set up a free consultation with a therapist but you let me know whenever you're ready for support and I'll be here for you and sort of leading the ball in their court right I feel like that's definitely a nicer more open and inviting way to ask someone if they're okay rather than just saying hey are you okay Mm-hmm. Because then I feel like asking, are you okay? Can like, that's the only way that I know how to ask someone how they're doing. If I'm worried mm-hmm. about their behavior or, you know, if something's changing about them, I kind of realized asking, are you okay? is kind of an easy way out for them to avoid opening up mm-hmm. and they can easily just say, yeah, I'm okay. And then at that point, the conversation has kind of like shut down right? Mm -hmm. Like at that point, you can't ask further questions because technically they're okay. Yeah. (laughs) But I like, I like how you just mentioned, you can, you know, let them know something's been on my mind for, for a while. You know, do you have time to talk about this? Let me know Mm -hmm. when you're open to talking about it. Um, I think just the way that you worded it, this is the reason why we wanted a therapist on, on the podcast, because we've all questioned each other on how to approach the situation mm-hmm. and we don't know what's best. And mm-hmm. so I think the way you yeah. worded it was like much better and just more inviting for someone yeah. to finally release whatever has been bothering them and just let mm-hmm. it out on the table. You know, for any of our listeners who may strongly relate to this episode with anything that we've discussed, what additional resources would you recommend for them to explore in order to learn more themselves? So find me. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm a great resource. Um, <laughs> of course, follow my follow my socials. I post a lot of um, tidbits and like a lot of thought provoking stuff. But yeah. really, you know even just scheduling any type of 15-minute consultations, free consultations with therapists. But um, something that I think can also be really helpful is the values exercise. And 
Again, you can find my Instagram where I walk you through this values exercise. But for anyone listening right now, there's a very quick way to understand who you are and your narrative in the world. And that's by taking out a piece of paper and a pen and just going ahead and drawing a whole bunch of circles on your paper and in each circle writing your values. So money, health, friendship, relationship, whatever. Then taking a second to think about on a scale of one to 10, how important is each value to me with 10 being most important? And once you're done that, you think about on a scale of one to 10, how much am I living by this value on a day-to-day -day basis? With 10 being, I'm living by this value all the time. And I think you're gonna learn that maybe your actions aren't in line with your values. Right. So you might really value mental health and physical exercise, but school or your jobs are really taking it all out of you. And this can be a great exercise to help you just recalibrate. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much, Nikita, for coming on and giving us like just a lot of eye opening information about ourselves and our profession, because this, this is, this is obviously not limited to optometry and optometry yeah. students, but on our podcast, which is all about optometry, this is definitely a topic that's not spoken about openly, um, mm -hmm. and not spoken about often. So, um, I think hopefully you reached a lot of people today and just mm -hmm. made them think a little bit differently about their life, about their actions about their behaviors and hopefully encouraged some people to seek therapy because it is helpful. It's not, it's not anything shameful at all. And um, I think we all just need to encourage more people to try it and see, see what it's like for them. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much to ladies for having me on here. This was great conversation. Thank you to everyone for listening to Four Eyes. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and leave us a rating to give us feedback on how we're doing. You can also check us out on Instagram at Four Eyes Optum for more content. Look out for new episodes every Wednesday. So until then, stay tuned.